0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vine Pair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. What do Kung Fu, Turkey Day, Teamwork, and Boulevardier all have in common? It's a question you've probably never thought to ask, but its answer lies in the year 1870, during which all of these words and terms enjoyed their first recorded usage in the English language. Obviously, I looked that one up, and I should point out that I did so after recording this week's show, because this very topic came up, so bear that one in mind. Anyhow, the Boulevardier cocktail wouldn't come along for some 50 years after the word meaning Stroller of Parisian Boulevards, essentially Man About Town, debuted. In its essence, this drink is a Negroni, with whiskey included in place of gin. But it's much, much more than that. For while this is not true of the former, there are two genuine schools of thought when it comes to serving the boulevardier. Should it be up or on the rocks? And given that whiskey is a much more diverse category of spirits than gin, the range of profiles this drink can take on far exceeds that of the Negroni. No offence intended to Count Camillo, of course. Joining us today to explore all of that and more is Amanda Gunderson. The 2022 recipient of Tales of the Cocktail's Pioneer Award, Amanda is also the CEO and co founder of Another Round, Another Rally. Usually, we like to call out our guests' bartending experience in this section, but I want to take a second to recognize the amazing work that nonprofit has done. Since 2020, Another Round, Another Rally has distributed over $3 million in relief aid to hospitality workers. It's also provided over 500 scholarships for development to underrepresented professionals. Amazing work, truly. And as you'll soon realise, Amanda has an equally impressive enthusiasm for and experience with mixing cocktails, particularly the Boulevardier. Lace up your boots, listener. We're going for a stroll down a broad avenue in 1920s Paris. It's the Boulevardier, and you're listening The Cocktail College Podcast. Sounds good? Awesome. Let's do this. Let's kick this off. It's the Cocktail College Podcast. And we are joined today by Amanda Gunderson. Amanda, welcome. Thanks for joining us.
1: Hi, Tim. Good to be here.
0: And whereabouts do we find you today in the world?
1: I am in sunny Southern California. I live in Los Angeles.
0: Very nice. Sunny Los Angeles. How is it there today?
1: It's a little chilly, but it is bright and sunny. Not a cloud in the sky. It's quite beautiful.
0: Oh, very nice. And and chilly on. A, I'm I'm guessing relatively chilly there. We're talking about because uh, I don't know. Some folks over here on the east coast might wanna might wanna argue about <laughs> <you> know,
2: <laughs> what constitutes
0: chilly.
1: Yeah, they probably wouldn't say low 60s is chilly, but for me, that's pretty, I've got a beanie on, so no, I don't have a beanie on, but it's pretty chilly.
0: Light sweater weather, I love it. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Well, I tell you what, I'm, I'm excited to jump into this one. It's the Boulevardier. Folks know that, the listeners know that, they've seen it on their feeds already before jumping into this. What a drink.
1: Yeah, what a drink. It's one of my very favorite drinks in the world. Um, it's perfection, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. And some regular listeners of the show might be interested in this one too from from my perspective, uh, or probably not, who knows. But just because, you know, I've put it out there before, the Negroni is a cocktail that I love, but I also feel like it's one that maybe gets a little bit more adoration than it deserves. I don't know. I know, I know that makes me, you know, <laughs> I know that's not a popular opinion there. However, the Boulevardier, I don't know. There's something about this. Well, obviously it must be, you know, the whiskey versus gin. There's something about this drink that although it's just one ingredient changing, it does transform it as a cocktail and really allows it to stand on its own and have its own identity.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I also kind of think I have kind of the opposite feeling that you do about the Negroni itself. You know, there's in cocktail world, in cocktail making, there are various families of cocktails. So you'll have like the buck, which is sort of a ginger beer cocktail and then you'll have you know daisies which your margarita or your cosmo would fall into that category and i actually feel like the negroni could be its own category because so it is so good with so many other spirits and whiskey is just a prime example but and you know whiskey is such a broad category that uh you know depending on what whiskey you put in there you're gonna have a completely different experience every time
0: oh 100 and i think you know that's That maybe highlights my feelings there too, because it's like there is this incredible range of flavor profiles of gin out there. No one's denying Mm -hmm. that. But when you're matching that with Campari and sweet vermouth, then maybe some of those nuances get lost. But I mean, if you're talking whiskey here, right? Imagine you're mixing it with a single grain versus a peated Isla malt or, you know, Mm -hmm. cask-strength bourbon, all of these things. I mean, all of those are going to have significant impacts on the profile, as I'm sure you can tell us and we'll get into. But um, yeah, this ain't a Negroni episode. And, you know, I've said enough about the Negroni now here. Um, (laughs) Let's celebrate the Boulevardier. Tell us, what's your relationship with this cocktail? When when did you first come across it? Do you have any really memorable ones? Tell us about your own experiences with this drink.
1: Yeah, I first uh, tried this cocktail from the bartender who first taught me craft Cocktail making, uh, which is a fellow named Julian Cox. He's now um, running a, a whole hotel group of bars in Las Vegas, but he uh, had a bar here in LA called Rivera. And I worked for him there. And that's really where I first discovered this drink um, and where I picked up on some specs. I love Julian specs for any sort of Negroni, uh, Boulevardier, any sort of um, variation on that. Um, it's one and a half, one, three quarter are his specs. So one and a half of the primary spirit, one of the, um, Italian liqueur, and then three quarter of the sweet vermouth. Um, and then I sort of Jimmy that up a little bit and added a bar spoon. So I like one and a half, one, three quarter bar spoon oh. on mine and the bar spoon I add is green chartreuse. Oh, And it's so good that way. Um, but the reason why I was, I chose green is because after I worked for Julian, I worked at a bar called the Bazaar and it was Jose Andres's restaurant here in LA. And it was molecular gastronomy. So there was a lot of craziness happening at the bar, a lot of, um, you know, liquid nitrogen and we made cocktails. We poured them over cotton candy and we froze the glassware right in front of the guest. And there was a lot of blowing fire behind the bar and all kinds of things. And one of the things I used to like to do is make a boulevardier intended to be served up. And then I would um, take the martini glass, put a little bit of green chartreuse in there, set that on fire and roll it around the glass so that it sort of caramelized the glass with green chartreuse before adding the boulevardier. That's my favorite, my favorite, favorite way of having it.
0: Oh, wow. That sounds fantastic. Um, And you've given us a little sneak preview there about one of the things that I think is very important when it comes to conversations on the boulevardier, how to serve it. Before we do that, though, can you tell us the history of this drink? Um, You know, obviously, again, I hate to go back to the Negroni, but the Negroni is one of those ones where it has this story that you can maybe pick holes in. Is that the case for the boulevardier or is it a little bit more concrete when it comes to its history and the figures involved with it?
1: yeah i mean from my understanding it is pretty concrete what happened there you know during prohibition uh, a lot of American bartenders people who were really career bartenders um, took the cocktails of america overseas most went to um you know either Cuba or the islands or they went over to the uk and really sort of revitalized what was a, kind of a dying art before prohibition anyway was making the making of cocktails. And uh, it was really America's k- kind of gift to the world, the cocktail. So there's a fellow a named um, Henry McElhone who went over there. He uh, opened, uh, or Harry McElhone, sorry. He opened um, Harry's New York Bar. A lot of your listeners would probably have heard of that before. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1927, he wrote a, a bar guide called Barflies and Cocktails. And that's the first place that we see the Boulevardier in print. Um, he named it that because it was a, a guest's favorite. Um, let's see, I've got the guest name here. Erskine Gwyn was his name. He's an expatriate, and he had this sort of publication that was uh, a, an American in Paris kind of, you know, Parisian publication, and it was called the Boulevardier. So the name of the cocktail came from that, but it was really his drink. Um, it's interesting, too, that that was the first time you see it in print in 27 because you don't see the specs for the Negroni in print for. 20 more years after that. Obviously people were making the Negroni first, but you, you don't find that in print until until well after the boulevardier was in print um, So technically that was the first <laughs> the first yeah. one out there. You also in 1927, you know at Harry's New York bar for them to be making these drinks there um, is a very expatriate thing to do and not something that would have been happening in America because we didn't even know about Campari in 1927 here in the United States.
0: Perhaps why it doesn't make it into those recipe books there too, right? As you mentioned, um, that being such a vital ingredient. Do we know if Erskine Gwyn invented this world, this word, sorry, the boulevardier? Um, I believe it has kind of, I've come across rough sort of translations or interpretations as a person about town, or relating to maybe kind of socialites or whatnot. Uh, perhaps inspired by the the boulevards of Paris. But do we know if do we know anything about the etymology of this word?
1: I actually don't know anything about that. I always assumed, to be honest, this I guess d- tells you how good my French is. I always just assumed it was a French word.
0: <laughs> it probably so. is as well. I never took <laughs> high school French, so probably people listening going, "No, it's in there in the dictionary." <laughs>
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, I really don't know. I just always have assumed that it was a French word. Uh, But I think you could probably say any word to me and put an IER on the end and I'd be like, oh, that's French. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Well, I don't really know.
0: (laughs) I think it's interesting too, you note this spreading of American bartenders around the world during Prohibition. And I... I'd be fascinated to go back to that time and just, just witness this happening. You know, imagine someone, you know, Harry McElhone there rocking up to Paris, you know, how established was cocktail culture at this time where someone could come from overseas and say, you know, I'd love to run your bar here. in you know, one of the, the glitziest, fanciest hotels in, in a similar city. Do you know what I mean? Like, I find that to be fascinating. Um, just thinking about that.
1: Right, I mean, you know, Harry. When he went over there, he worked in other people's bars first. Um, He opened Harry's New York bar, and that was his place that he he was the proprietor of. But um, he worked at Ciro's in London first, Um, and then he worked in let's see, the Plaza. Well, he worked in the Plaza Hotel in New York. Um, He worked in Ciro's in London, and uh, he worked in. Deauville, France, at Ciro's in and, and Deauville, France as well. So he he kind of made his way up in the scene first mm. <clears throat> before opening his own bar there in London.
0: That does make more sense. Or excuse than, me,
1: in France, yeah.
0: Yeah, than <clears throat> Harry just turning up at the hotel or whatever with a suitcase, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Might be a tough yeah. sell, that one. <laughs> um, but just, yeah, also just fascinating to consider the the effect that that had of... of spreading and evolving the idea of this concept of the cocktail around the world um i think that's why so many people find this this pursuit of drinks fascinating in the in this era we like to call the renaissance these days um you know since then in recent times and speaking of that um do you recall when you kind of you you mentioned um who you learned this drink from but do you recall when you first sort of saw this reappearing on menus or becoming something that you could possibly call out by name rather. And, and most folks might know how to make it. And also, well, people should have had the ingredients already. I would have assumed.
1: Yeah. I would say probably I, in my memory, you know, maybe some other places with people would say that they it even earlier, But in my memory, this is sort of coming out around like where people are just regularly calling for something like this would have been sort of around like 2009,
2: 2010.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I remember uh, around 2009 learning the cocktails and, uh, you know, all of the classics. And I remember thinking like who is ever going to come in here and order a Queens Park swizzle, you know, and then, like my first night on the floor, boom, three Qu- Queens Park swizzles right away. The <laughs> wow. back, you know, so, like, I just, I think it was, I was really surprised when I when I really started learning cocktails is when I started to see like, Oh, these people really know. So for, for me, I would have noticed it around 2010, 2009. Um, but probably even earlier than that, I know the, the cocktail scene in LA was a little bit behind where it was in New York. And we really started to explode here in about 2006
0: and seven. That's wonderful. And, and this is a drink itself. Where do you feel like it lies along someone's line of, or exploration of, of cocktails, right? Say I'm just getting into drinks. I can imagine some of the ones you would have first, you probably already know Martinis, Manhattans, Negroni's, Do you feel like this is maybe like the second wave of drinks that you would discover, i.e., you know the Negroni, here's something that's similar, but also almost profoundly different?
1: Yes, I do think that this is sort of, um, you know, you've got those other cocktails that are delicious, spectacular, wonderful, that you mentioned that Martini Manhattan Negroni Phase, But they are sort of like for the consumer, a little bit like your training wheels years, you know, those are yeah. like where you're just discovering what cocktails are and they are the foundations that you should really like be introduced to cocktails with. Um, and this is one I do find to be um for that a little bit more refined palate that is really pushing in that way of, of learning more about, of refining even further. Some people's palates when they um, start getting into cocktails are just go straight towards, you know, tiki drinks or something like that. Um, And that's, there's there's nothing wrong with that. You know, some Mm. people really, you know, live in warm climates and just want, you know, fresh fruit and soda water and stuff like that in their cocktails a lot. So, uh, there's also nothing wrong with that, but this tends to be, I think one that goes a little bit more towards refinement. It's crazy to me how much my palate has changed because when I first started bartending and I very first tasted Campari, I was like, (laughs)
2: <laughs> what is this battery acid? You know, like, why do people drink this garbage?
1: I was just so against it. And then now I almost feel like it's a little too sweet. You know, like I just, I love Campari. It's like one of those uh, ingredients that I would never not have in my home bar or in a I would expect to see it in any bar. I would expect any bartender to know it and love it and pour it for me. But, uh, you know, they haven't changed their recipe at all. Uh, just my palate has changed over the years. And so I I do think that this, with the element of the sweet vermouth as well, and the element of the Campari, you almost have, a, you'd have to, as a bartender, ask the guest, like, do you like a Negroni? Just to test, are you okay with Campari, yeah. or am I going to hand you something that you're going to be like, what on earth is this? Especially with my creation, because I also add green chartreuse, which is um, sweet and lovely, but it also is, um, you know, has so many elements to it that you know you don't want to just put that on a palette that is really not expecting that.
0: A hundred percent, yeah. I mean, that it's yeah, it's a, it's a real complex ingredient there, and a little goes a long way. I think it's a great point there about Campari. You know, you would expect all bars to have that, and also in that conversation too of kind of drinkers explorations. That's an ingredient that you can assume if people are starting to make cocktails at home, it's one of the earlier bottles they're going to be picking up and also, Mm -hmm. you know, sweet vermouth, you'd expect them to have that in the fridge too. So it's another great candidate there where it's like, not only is this one that you can go and get at bars and appreciate, but you can make very simply at home.
1: Yeah. Yes, that's right. And, you know, when you're making drinks at home or when you're ordering drinks at a bar, I mean... So we we were touched on this a little bit earlier, me saying that I love to have my boulevardier up in with the caramelized green chartreuse. That's what I would do for a, guest, a special guest. But at home, I would drink it on the rocks. Um, but that I feel like the answer to what is the correct glass? where you know, up or on the rocks, It's really whatever the guest wants is the correct answer, mm-hmm. you know? So when you're making it at home, it, it's really whatever you want. Cause if you're making it for yourself or you're making it for your friends. So, um, you know, I feel like there's a lot of, of rules around cocktail making. Um, and the, just the most important ones to adhere to are, you know, strong, correct measurements and great ingredients. Yeah. Um, but the glassware, that's you know, whatever you
0: want. <laughs> <laughs> but in it, my opinion, <laughs> it definitely stands to reason though, that you would, make this and serve it on the rocks for most guests because that's probably what they're expecting if they know yes. that this is a, is a if sibling of the Negroni.
1: It, yeah. If they didn't ask me for it up or if, um, I wasn't working at a bar where I was trying to put on a show by setting things on fire, um, <laughs> <then> <laughs> I could serve it on the rocks <laughs> for sure. For sure.
0: So I, uh, I'll be honest in recent years, I have firmly fallen into the camp of preferring this as a drink served up. Um, you mentioned there with, you know, your own specific serve with the chartreuse and whatnot, you know, that being something you'd go towards too. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about the differences between the two though? How, how does this drink differ if I'm receiving one, you know, like served up in a coupe or, you know, on the rocks in an old fashioned glass, how do those two versions vary?
1: Well, the biggest difference you're going to have there is the ice and, um, you know, obviously the type of ice is very important on the rocks, uh, because you're going to get dilution right away. Uh, the minute that you pour this drink, any drink on the rocks, it's starting to die because the water is diluting it. So, um, you know, I, it's if you have a large piece of ice, you're going to get less dilution. So you're going to be able to enjoy the drink a little bit more um, or, or a little bit longer, I guess. Um, so that's I would say that's the biggest thing is when you get it served up, you're not in any danger of having any dilution happening.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I think part of what makes these specks of Julian's, this one and a half, one, three quarter so good is because this drink is traditionally served on the rocks And so instead of doing a one, one, one with that one and a half of the whiskey at the beginning of it, you're, you're getting something that you're not really going to lose from the delusion. You're not going to lose it too much because you have a whole like extra half an ounce of that high proof spirit in there. um, That's really going to cut through having it on the rocks.
0: Oh yeah. That's a great point there. Yeah, definitely. Cause you know, all right. Campari's not kind of vermouth level when it comes to ABV, but it's certainly not a spirit either. So Yeah. Worth, worth remembering that in that classic equal parts build, two of your ingredients are, are lower than the proof of a spirit. Right, exactly. And I guess in this conversation of how to serve, you could be pragmatic and you could say, uh, "We'll just serve it in a coop with a large glass of ice, uh, a large rock of ice. I'm sorry. Um, I'm just going to show my hand here. I am not a proponent of that serve of any drink. Um, I
1: was just going to say... That is not okay.
0: <laughs> I do not like that, but I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it. Out there. I
1: know. Whatever that is.
0: What <laughs> is going on with that?
1: Yeah, that's so silly. It's, <laughs> I you know, for me it's not okay on every level. Primarily <laughs> though because when you drink from a coop you, who wants a piece of ice hitting their nose as they're trying to drink a cocktail? It's not meant to be a glass, a, piece, a glassware that holds um, ice, you know? And I just said, <laughs> look, it, if the guest comes to you and says, I want this in a coop and put a big piece of ice in it, give them what they want. You know? sure, it's just, sure, It's fine. But I just think that that, that little, whatever that is, that, um, phase needs to um needs to die
0: (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't agree with you more I mean yeah am I having a drink outside in sunny LA and perhaps need my nose cooling a little bit I don't know I I don't know where this is coming from but it looks interesting in photos again I'm just not sure but no
1: it's just impossible to drink you know (laughs) and I think I think we sometimes get a little carried away one of the greatest bits or pieces about the where we are in cocktail culture right now is this like unbridled creativity that you get. You know, you've got this generation of bartenders that are just so exciting. And um they know how to make cocktails that look beautiful in pictures. They know how to make something that when it goes on a tray through a crowded room, everybody's going to see it and want to order it. You know, they, they really, the, today's generation of bartenders is so creative. There are some things like that that are just like, eh, that might look good in a picture, but realistically, who wants ice touching their nose when they're <laughs> trying to drink a cocktail? Like just you have to think sometimes about just the actual moment that the person is going to have while ex- drinking this thing. Um, and so that's a trend that I hope just doesn't last for too much longer.
0: Yeah. And if we talk about this, I hate putting things into boxes when it comes to seasons or seasonality or whatnot, right? But I can imagine out there somewhere on Instagram, a kind of bar related uh, profile out there might be might be selling t shirts that are like Negroni's in summer, Boulevardier's in winter. Um, Do you think this is the winter version of that drink? Or do you maintain that this is this is something that holds its own kind of year round?
1: Well, I think I I would drink this cocktail year-round, no question, no problem, and I would drink a Negroni year-round, no problem, (laughs) and I'm the kind of person that would take this cocktail in the summertime if I really felt like having an effervescent drink, and I would throw this into a Collins glass with some ice and top it with soda. No problem. Like, oh, yeah. I just think, you know, I would do this year round uh, without question. Uh, it's interesting. You know, one time this is uh, maybe not as uh, I guess this is as effective as see- or, or, let me take that back. I guess what I'm about to say relates to the seasonality uh, question. But I got into this conversation once with a bartender from New York and he was really going on and on about how New York was a far superior cocktail scene to L.A., Sounds
0: like
1: a New Yorker saying that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he was going on about you know we appreciate the spirits, and so we do all these stirred drinks, and we, you know, all you guys do is put a bunch of fruit in a a can and shake it up, and everything has citrus in it. And I said to him, well, yeah, I mean that makes sense though. You know, when you're in New York, your limes are the size of a quarter. You know, I live in LA where I have access to giant fresh citrus every day, and like fresh farmers markets every week. And why wouldn't we be a fruit forward cocktail scene down here? You know, we just have access to all of that. Um, and I think that also speaks to seasonality because people assume that these more stirred drinks go in winter and the fruit drinks go in the summer. Um, and it it can also just be, you know, regional that that's where, where you are, you know, you're making you, you in New York might be making a lot of, um, Shrubs and bitters and tinctures and things, and those are originally meant to you know give more shelf life to the product that you're using. So, um, in where in LA you might not need to use those as much because you can just get the product, mm-hmm. you know, kind of year round. Um, so it's a it's a weird conversation to have. Again, I'm just that one that's like make them what they want,
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whatever exactly. time of year it is.
1: If somebody sits in front of you in July and asks you for a Tom and Jerry, just make it for them, <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> well, that's maybe that's a bit of an ask, but yeah, definitely a hundred percent. Also, just on that, you know, I guess final point on that too. There, it's L. A. has some wonderful stunning indoor bar spaces but also is very much a city that lends itself to drinking outside to you know I mean like you know on a patio or whatever you know um covered spaces this drinking outside is a relatively new phenomenon for or availability for cocktail bars in in New York you know since we're seeing a lot of these structures go up in the pandemic and and staying and I would argue that the experience is definitely not the same, um, where, you know, we're a lot more concentrated and also, uh, yeah, those structures are starting to look a little ropey now, some of them. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I was going to ask you after this about the, about, you know, the, the equal parts formula you, you have, you know, mentioned this twice though, that, that kind of upping the spirit, um, versus going with that classic, you know, equal parts formula, um was that something you said that that you would do for the Negroni as well sorry or like this whole family of drinks, as you kind of described it as the at the beginning
1: yeah it's it's something that uh you know after you learn that and you do it that way, it's hard not to do it that way because everything just tastes so good mm-hmm. <laughs> those specs um it's something that Um, I use a lot to riff on when I'm in cocktail creation. For example, I just um, created a cocktail for... Um, the Community Spirit Company for their vodka, mm-hmm. um, and they were putting out a. They have a cocktail book that's out right now for the holidays, um, and I'm lucky enough to have been featured in it. And it is where I pulled those specs from. That same type of Negroni spec, that one and a half, one three quarter kind of vibe. Um, the the cocktail that I came up with there, it starts with one, an ounce and a half of the base spirit, so an ounce and a half of the vodka, um, and then I did three quarter pamplemousse and three quarter um, apérol. Nice. Um, and then a bar spoon of green chartreuse and a couple dashes of orange bitters. So you can kind of see where that, where I like to go one and a half, one, three quarter bar spoon. It's kind of that same vibe that, um, ounce and a half and then three quarter, three quarter bar spoon. Uh, and then a couple of dashes of bitters and that cocktail is a yum, 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 yum. Like mm. you just can't,
2: <laughs> you just can't
1: <laughs> not want another one. It is so delicious. So I had one recently at um, a book signing and I was like, you can just keep these coming. It just, so it's so good, but it's really because, not because I'm the most amazing cocktail creator in the world, but because those specs are great and the ingredients are great. And that those are the two big pieces of making great cocktails is just having incredible ingredients and really being careful about your measurements.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It has always struck me as, you know, somewhat fortunate that apparently the ideal formula for some of these drinks would be equal parts across the board, right? Like, that does seem almost too good to be true. Um, but I think, as we mentioned before, you know, in the case of gin, but even more so in whiskey, it's definitely worth looking at, right? Because with there being so much variation within those categories, it's, it's I don't know, I don't think you can take it for granted, right? <laughs>
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and with whiskey in particular, you know, for me, for if I was going to make a Boulevardier right now, I would probably put, you know, something bonded in there. Um, I really love old tub and it's like, a $20 bottle of bourbon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's so delicious. it's, you know, non-chill filtered or it's uh, it's completely unfiltered actually and it's just, you know, it's just delicious. But I also love another bartender favorite, Old Overholt, if I was going to go towards a rye. Mm-hmm. Um I would go for either one of those a, in a bonded format for this. Um I guess I'd want that 100 proof. I'd want that non-filtered vibe. Um, but you know, you could get something that's aged for four years. You could get something that's aged for 12 years. You could get something that was, you know, distilled to 125 proof and, uh, you know, put in right, right at barrel proof. You could get something that was distilled to 138 and that completely changes the flavor. You could get something that was aged in a new barrel, a used barrel. Something that was aged in Kentucky is going to taste very different from something that was aged in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, with whiskey, you just, we touched on it a little bit earlier, but, you know, I agree with you. There are just so many broad variations to it, not just the grain, not just the original flavor profile, but what actually happens to the liquid in the aging process um, and the choices that are made there can really deeply affect the flavor of what you're going to get. And that is just so interesting in this format, in this Negroni style of cocktail.
0: Yeah. And also probably worth pointing out here, though, that bourbon is the official or, you know, the the original whiskey used in this drink, correct? Yes. And that makes sense, not just from a profile standpoint, but I, I guess if you want to look at it more kind of romantically, the relationship between or the marriage of the United States and France when it comes to this drink, the relationship there. So it is nice that that, that bourbon would be the one that's used in this.
1: Yes, I agree, and I also feel like, um, you know, if you prefer rye but you wanted to be true to the original, that's the thing about whiskeys. You know, you can just get a high rye content bourbon, yeah, like Basil Hayden's or something. You know, <laughs> like you could just you could just get something that has that rye feel to it. Um, and use that in there. I, for me though, if I was the one thing I would want out of the whiskey component in this is to be somewhere at least around a hundred proof. I feel like that's gonna, that's gonna really kind of cut through some of the, the liqueurs that are, and the, and the aperitif that's in there. Um,
0: Yeah. And does that also come into play when we're considering the body and the texture of this drink? Because, okay, Campari's got this luscious mouthfeel anyway. Um, Sweet remove, maybe not so much so, but it depends on what you're using. But yeah, maybe something, you know, I don't know, a a whiskey bottled at 80 proof for this might struggle to hold its own on that front.
1: That is true, I would say, definitely. Um, I would also say one of the things that I like about something like Old Tub, that it's unfiltered, Um, or even like something that's non-chill filtered. If you went for something like that, that those can be a little dangerous, but they are great whiskeys because of that non-chill filtration. What happens is there's a lot of lipids and fatty, you know, components in whiskey. Mm-hmm. And over the years, those fatty lipids will sort of congeal in the bottle. Um, if you let that, you know, it would never happen at my house. I would never let a bottle of whiskey sit around that long, but you know, <laughs> over the years it would congeal inside the bottle and it, it looks gross. It looks kind of like, you know, there's you know, snot floating around in your <laughs> bottle. And so people will do a chill filtration on that. So basically make it very cold, bring the lipids together take them off you know get them kind of frozen and pull them off of the out of the thing what happens though is when you remove that fat from the uh, whiskey is um or when you leave it in there is that fat will cover your mouth it will really coat the inside of your of of your taste buds and your 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 whole mouth experience gives you that luscious mouth feel but it also sort of protects you from really being hit by a very high proof spirit. So you're actually able to taste the the flavor components of the spirit more than you are the actual like hard ethanol flavors uh, because your mouth has already been coated in that sort of like fatty layer. Um, and so that if you have an unfiltered or non-chill filtered uh, bourbon that you're using in that, that will definitely also really elevate your experience in a way that is so subconscious, you won't even realize it's happening.
0: Yeah, such a great point. And also something that anecdotally, it seems that more whiskey drinkers are becoming aware of and care about. And definitely it's hard to quantify that, right? By just saying like, it seems like that. But I guess there's some evidence also in the fact that I come across more and more bottles these days of whiskey that are proudly putting that on their label. So I'm sure they wouldn't be doing that unless there was a realization there that consumers understand this or a certain sect of consumers understand this and they care about it.
1: Right, exactly. And you do have to be careful with it because the higher proof you get... You know <laughs> I don't know, um uh, Fred No used to tell us that his dad uh Booker no, I've heard Fred speak on this a couple times, but that his dad Booker no, who you know created Bookers and Baker's and Knob Creek and mm-hmm. a bunch of other like big ones um that he when he did Bookers, you know he that was non chill filtered. Uh, barrel proof, always bottled up at, at the proof. Uh, you know, the barrels come from the center of the rack house, all all the things that would make it like the perfect bottle of bourbon. Mm-hmm. But he used to call it uh, pajama whiskey because he would say, you know, you should, if you're not in your pajamas, you should be on your way to your pajamas. If you're going to start drinking this, because it's going to knock you on your, on your feet, or on, on your ass there. So <laughs> excuse my language, but, um, but yeah, so um, but I do think that there is a call for it now. I think that the consumer is starting to to see to really feel the difference in that filtration process.
0: Mm-hmm. And what if we look slightly outside the box at some other categories of whiskey or styles of whiskey? I'm not going to assume that you've tried all of these in boulevardiers, but perhaps you have. But maybe just a simple yes or no here in terms of um is it something maybe oh. that you would stand behind? So I don't know. Guess starting with like a peated single malt. How do we feel about that? Yay or nay for the Boulevardier?
2: Yay. Yay? Yay, <laughs> yeah.
0: And anything you might tweak like, to make that work?
1: I, I Here's a, here's my feeling on it. I, I feel like you're probably not going to say any type of whiskey, but I'm going to say yeah. Too. I, I was starting to wonder <laughs>
0: if that were the case. <laughs>
1: feel like it's all oh, delicious in there um i'm not such a huge fan of like heavy heavy peat in scotch mm-hmm. um i prefer it to be a, like a little bit on the lighter side but uh that being said i do feel like um you know i love this type of setup with mezcal
2: mm.
1: um and i feel like the smokier the better for this type of cocktail this mezcal negroni um, and so it to me that sort of peated scotch I've never had one uh, at boulevardier with that, but I have had a very smoky mescal and so I just would imagine it sort of lives in that same flavor profile world and it's to me very enjoyable.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and some of those as well with that, you know, with a real lovely, bright fruit character that you can get with those peated whiskies too, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and more maybe orchard and stone fruits than you might come across in, say, a bourbon. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely good candidate. All right, I'm going to assume that you, you're going to say yes to a, you know, Irish single <laughs> pot still, maybe even a single <laughs> grain. Uh, so... What if someone were coming at this with a uh, spiced whiskey? um, (laughs) Flavoured, perhaps. Maybe that's the only one where I might have Uh, you considering.
1: Maybe maybe one of those, like peanut butter whiskeys I probably <laughs> wouldn't do yeah <laughs> or I forget I, I, I always forget that there's a category of flavored whiskeys like I just don't want it to be real and so I think I just don't acknowledge that it exists but I think you're right you're probably hitting on mm-hmm. something like a, a flavored whiskey I probably would stick, stay away from
0: yeah and I believe not sadly because I, I you know I, I don't I don't want Wish to judge anyone for what they drink, but I do believe actually Fireball might be the best-selling whiskey in America. It's definitely top five. So, um, you know, Are maybe it's worth trying Fireball
1: it. whiskey. Do we call
2: it
0: that? Uh, as a, well, you're allowed to, as long as you're not using the e. Apparently, I think that's how they spell Got it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't that's know. Funny. Actually, I, I, you know, the peanut butter. When you were speaking about that, I was like, actually, might work for this. Uh, it's definitely not classic. We'll see. I know what I'm doing tonight. Um, (laughs) All right. Next ingredient, though, sweet vermouth. Um, I'm going to ask you about one brand in particular first, uh, if that's okay with you. And that's Uh the Carpano Antica formula, because I found there to be over the course of writing about cocktails and, you know, this this podcast hosting this. I definitely find it to be quite polarizing. I always came into this assuming that this was a bartender favorite, and I know a lot of bartenders do love that sweet vermouth, but then others I've, I, I've heard say that this can be just hijack the drink in a way and, and really kind of steal the show a bit. Where do you stand on that one for, for the Boulevardier or just in general?
2: Well,
1: I mean, again, it, that really depends on your specs. If you're going one to one to one, it can hijack the cocktail for sure. It is a robust uh, sweet vermouth. It's delicious. I think it's just on its own because of how robust it is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if somebody poured me a little glass of that, I would uh, take it happily and sip <laughs> on it, in, yeah. you know, in the evening after dinner um, or before dinner. Um, so, I, you know, I do think that it can hijack it. But in this sort of one and a half, one three quarter um, bar spoon spell that I've like, put together for this, it's it's almost requires something as robust as Carpano Antica because you've taken that down by a half a, or a quarter of a, an ounce. Um, and so you do need something that's robust enough to stand up to a full ounce of Campari um, and an ounce and a half of a high proof bourbon, you mm-hmm. know, and then plus we're adding a little touch of green chartreuse, which just like you said, a little bit can go a long way there. So for me, it, it really depends on your specs. If I was going to go a one-to-one-to-one though, I would probably put something more like Dolan's or something in there that's just a little bit softer. Uh, but I, for me, <clears throat> if I only had one sweet vermouth in my house, I would pick up a bottle of Carpano Antica.
0: Nice. and And that's a really great illustration there of what you were talking about before, where it's like, What's the spec of my drink? Well, it depends on the ingredients at hand. And what ingredients should mm-hmm. I use for this drink? Well, it depends on the spec you're using. So I guess you got to you got to right. you got to start somewhere, but you you make that choice and and probably I would guess in the bar scenario, you are dictated by your ingredients because um you know you need something that works across the board. You're not just thinking drink by drink.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's just, as you're thinking about what exactly, if you're, if you're making cocktails at home, you know, you can kind of adjust your specs to match what it is that you, what your ingredients are.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. All right. Then final ingredient. I have Campari written here. You did mention, you know, bitter Italian aperitivos, red bitter Italian aperitivos. Of course, Campari is the one that has come to define this category. Um, is that where you're you're reaching for, or have there been any contenders that you've encountered during your years that you're like, actually, I really love this too for this drink?
1: Mm, yeah, I mean, for uh, a Boulevardier, uh, I really do love Campari in a Boulevardier. Mm. Um, I also, um, if I was going to do this cocktail though with tequila, for example, I would use. Um, uh, Aperol hey. um, with the cocktail riff that I did the Rise Up for the Community Spirit Company I used Aperol there because that is um, vodka, has, you know, it's a delicious vodka on its own um, it has a lot, you know, people say that vodkas are supposed to be flavorless and odorless, but it's really not true. If you put five vodkas next to each other, you would see, see the difference. Any Anyone with 100%. any type of palate would be able to tell the difference between different vodkas and the Community Spirit one is um, it is, um, a little uh, on the complex side and it has a wonderful mouthfeel. Uh, and so I wanted to honor that with a bunch of Southern California things. So I wanted it to feel, but I, I knew I wanted it to be stirred. I just think there's something so sexy about a stirred cocktail. Yeah. <laughs> when Somebody asks you for it, especially with, with, uh, the main ingredient being vodka. I feel like it, it asks to be stirred almost. Um, and so that's where the pamplemousse and then the Italian bitter, Aperol coming from apricots, um, and then the green chartreuse and then orange bitter. So I had those three oranges, um, Pomplimous being the grapefruit and then apricot in there. Um, so I think it really kind of depends on what flavor profile you're going for, where you what your riff is on this particular take of cocktail. Uh, but with the Boulevardier, <clears throat> man, I really do love it with Campari.
0: Mm-hmm. Amazing. <clears throat> and now can you walk us through the preparation of this drink as if you were, Making the ideal version of this in in your bar. If I'm, you know, sat or or a bar, right? If I'm sat in front of you today and you're making it, um, and the one that you would kind of stand by and say this is my version of this drink. Can you talk us through that, start to finish, including your specs, please?
1: Yeah. So, um, I I was it was really hammered into me as a young bartender that you always start first ingredient that you put in is your bitters or anything like that because they're drops and you don't want to forget them. And then the next ingredients you put in are the least expensive to the most expensive. So, you know, if you're making something that's shaken and it has, you know, cucumbers muddled in it, cucumbers would go in there first, and then you would put the juices and the, or the syrup and then the juice and then your liquor last. Um, and so for this, in that way of thinking, I would start with the bar spoon of green chartreuse so that we don't forget it. Um, and it's just the smallest measurement there. And then I would go to the sweet remove the three quarter ounce. And then I would do an ounce of the Campari or whatever the Italian bitter is that you're putting in there. And then I would put, well, I would put Campari and mm-hmm. I would use Carpato antica And then I would put an ounce and a half of a bonded bourbon. Um, so let's just call it old tub, since that's what we've been talking about today. Nice. Um, I would stir that, um, you know, then I would put the ice in, I would stir it, um, let it kind of cook in there for a little bit. And then I would pour that into a chilled glass. Um, uh, I, I think I would probably, since you, if I was making this for you, I would serve it up.
0: Yes.
2: So I put it
1: into a chilled, a chilled glass. And you know what I really love? Everybody loves a coupe and everything, but I just love a Nick and Nora glass. It's just the cutest. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and and you get to say Nick and Nora, so I would probably, <laughs> probably put it in a Nick and Nora glass, and then I would garnish it with a flamed orange peel, just to really get more of those um, oils out of the peel.
0: Hmm. You know, and that nice connection there to the Campari. Um, And is that peel making its way into the Nicanora as well? Or are you just flaming and you're saying, we're done with you, buddy?
1: I would flame it and uh, then I would uh, run it around the top of the glass and um, maybe like take it down the stem a little bit. And then I would put it on the side of the glass and let you decide if you were done with it or not.
0: Very nice, 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 nice pragmatic approach there uh, again, or, or, you know, no, I think this definitely speaks to how we're coming to appreciate your philosophy here on this show that you're like, it's the drinker's choice. Yes, very much so. Very nice. Um, all right, before we move into the final se- section of the show, any final thoughts on the boulevardier for us today?
1: Uh, well, one thought is that I definitely know what I'm drinking tonight. <laughs> like, man, I wish I could make myself one right now. I, it's, I just love just talking about it so much. is like, oh, it's so good. It's just such a great drink. And I do feel like just to reiterate your point earlier, you know, for any um, bartenders that are out there or, you know, uh, drink aficionados who make drinks at home and have friends who come over and are like, what are you making for me now? This is really a great stepping stone into even more complex cocktails. And it's so simple to make, even if you just go for the one-to-one-to-one version, it's going to be delicious. Mm -hmm. Um, So give it a try.
0: Yeah. And, and one of those ones too, I guess, if you're having a dinner party, um, a batcher. This is a good batcher cocktail, right? Too, especially if you're serving it on the rocks. Yeah,
1: for sure. Especially if you're serving it on the rocks, because then the rocks will dilute it a little bit. Um, but yeah, if you're going to batch this, um, I would say, you know, batch it with a little bit of water to, to taste so that, um, you know, it's, it's got a little bit of dilution in there, but yeah, this is a good one to batch for sure.
0: Wonderful. Well, not just what I'm drinking tonight, then perhaps what I'm going to be serving this holiday season. Who knows? Um <laughs> need to check on my green chartreuse well, true supplies now.
1: You know, this is also you could do like, a, uh, you know, brown butter fat wash on the bourbon. You could add, you know, take your capari and let it sit with some cloves and nutmeg for a little while Ooh. before. I mean, you really could make this into a very holiday
0: drink sounds fantastic all right then amanda let's get to know yourself a little bit more as a bartender and our drinker as we finish with our five weekly questions here okay question number one for you what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar uh
1: i mostly have um agaves or whiskey and it's um, it's kind of hard to say to because I, I i have i have a ton of whiskey and i have a ton of agave spirits on my back bar, but the two that should be there the most often that are not because I drink them the most <laughs> so <laughs> I tend to go quickly are bourbon and tequila specifically. But I have uh, quite a, a nice selection of scotches and mescals and. Lysia, Bacanora, Japanese whiskeys, et cetera. So I have a number of other things within those categories, but the two that I have to replace the most often are bourbon and tequila.
0: Very nice. Question number two, which ingredient or tool do you believe is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal?
1: You know, I was thinking about this. It's kind of hard to say. I I do think that... um, certain things like you know to that the maybe the bar spoon measurement is a little undervalued i love just throwing a bar spoon of something in something you know just taking a cocktail and just sticking a bar spoon of absinthe in there yeah (laughs) you know or um taking the cocktail and you know we obviously have uh gotten it down that i love to put a bar spoon of green chartreuse into things but Mm -hmm. also love to put a bar spoon of yellow chartreuse into something or a bar spoon of you know, Braulio or, or any number of Italian, um, uh, aperitifs or, or, um, Amari, you know, I just, I think that bar spoon measurement can really, um, brighten up a cocktail. I think it's also when you taste a cocktail that feels a little unbalanced, a bar spoon of simple syrup Ooh. can really explode that thing into the right direction. You know, you can balance it quickly when you're in the well and you're trying to make sure everybody's drinks are great. Um so I, I think that bar spoon measurement is maybe a little um undervalued.
0: I'm so with you on that one. Uh you have no idea how often a, a cheeky little bar spoon of mezcal or eau de vie might make it into my martini.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean that sounds incredible.
2: Yeah. That's <laughs> great.
0: <laughs> no, it really is not. You know where, you know, I'm like Perhaps it's my second martini that I'm making my, for myself in the day. And it's like, well, you know, I want to stick in this lane, but I also want something that's slightly different. And, you know, those mm-hmm. ingredients will have a profound effect. I love it. Um, yeah. All right. Question number three What's the most important piece of advice you received while working in this industry? <laughs>
1: Well, I think we've sort of hit on it already a lot today, <clears throat> but the most important piece of advice I've ever gotten is to remember that your job is to bring out the best in the guest and that's it. You know, the cocktails are a vessel for that. Um, but it's really, you know, your job is to be there to, to bring out the best in the guest.
0: Very nice. I do like it when the advice rhymes as well. That is a bonus <laughs> point there. <laughs> Question number four. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be?
1: You know, I gave this question some thought because really, I'm just going to say this bar because I'm, this question is just a hypothetical, but if I could only visit one last bar in my life, I would, it would be a bar that was, is already closed. And I would say Mm -hmm. that's the good luck bar in LA. It's this little dive bar that was um, themed after this, uh, Chinese restaurant in Chinatown that was um, like really a happening place back in the day called Yini Lu's. Um And when they opened the good luck bar, it's very, it's like red velvet kind of walls and red lanterns hanging around. And they had the actual original jukebox from yi Lu's and put that into the good luck bar. And it's just, it was just this great neighborhood bar. People are always in somebody every night of the week, somebody's in there celebrating a birthday, you know, it's an oval shaped bar. I used to when I worked there. It was I learned so much from being in an oval shaped bar because you know you have to constantly be wondering if somebody behind you who wants a drink, is somebody to your side who wants a drink. Mm. You know you don't get to just look up and see, and so you really have to be aware of everybody all the time, like on your toes. And um, you know it's just a great place. There'd always be some couple making out in the corner, and the jukebox was such hot fire with all the songs, like really good. Just somebody would always come in and load it up with some, I don't know, hollow notes or something. And the whole bar would start singing. And it was just this great place that was there for 25 years. And, uh, they, um, somebody came in and pushed them out and they're opening a little, I don't know, boutique hotel or something there now instead. So it's a bummer, but if I could, if I was going to have one last chance at one bar in my life, it would be that one.
0: Well, right up until the end there, I was going to say sounds incredible. It does sound incredible, but um, shame to hear of their fortunes. But yeah, sounds like a great mm-hmm. pick. Final question for you here today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make?
1: I would order or make an old-fashioned, and I would order it or make it with either Yamazaki 18 or Redbreast Twenty Five Year. Nice. Not sure which of those two <laughs> I would. <still> <laughs> not. Uh, that would ha- that would be the game time decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which which of those two whiskeys? But uh, yeah, that's uh, what I would do, and I would have them go light on the sugar.
0: <laughs> uh, that's what I love to hear when we get to this final question of the show, when someone really does indulge. So, you know what, we're pulling out the big guns for the last one. And, you know, what I'm, I'm I'm personally a big proponent of using your absolute best bottles in cocktails, specifically ones like that, where it really does allow the the spirit to shine, but it is still a cocktail.
1: Yeah, for sure. For sure. I know I was talking about um, Fred No a little bit earlier, who's um, now his son, Freddie, is the master distiller at Beam. But Fred was there for a long time. And, you know, anybody who knows Fred knows that he'll just say what's on his mind, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> he really will. but, um, you know, somebody asked him at some point, um, you know, my, my some woman said, uh, you know, my husband says that I'm drinking it wrong. That I put, um, bookers in my, um, whiskey and Coke,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and he says that I'm like not respecting the the whiskey. And I think a lot of people would have expected him to, you know, kind of tell her off a little bit, but he just looked at her and said, um, well, that means you're drinking the best whiskey and Coke in the world. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) You know, I think that most recent, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I think that most recent, um, Booker's release of this year, the, the, the third batch is called the, I think it's called bookers tea or kentucky tea and they suggest Mm -hmm. it's it's after what that recipe of one part bookers and three or four parts water i was very Mm -hmm. skeptical about this but i tried it and it's absolutely delicious (laughs) yeah so
1: delicious so delicious i mean bookers is just a spectacular uh, release after release after release it's a spectacular bourbon um, but yeah, I mean, they, uh, a lot of times will um, formulate bourbons to be drunk at, at you know, um, something more like 32% alcohol,
2: mm-hmm.
1: ca- calculating for it to be watered down, you know, calculating for it to be a dram with like, you know, served with water or served on the rocks or served in a cocktail. So when they're, when they're calculating the flavor profile, uh, rarely are they looking for something that's just straight out of the bottle. I mean, it's always going to be delicious straight out of the bottle, but, um, they're also really calculating as well that, that extra bit of water, what does it taste like there? make sure that it's still delicious at that point.
0: So, so nice of them to do so.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure chatting about the Boulevardier. Um, I think I need to go and consult a French dictionary, then um, top up on my screwball whiskey for tonight.
1: Likewise, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's I. I just love getting so nerdy about cocktails. And I have a number of friends who are not as nerdy about cocktails who are like, oh, my God, is she going to try and get me to take the blue pill or the red pill (laughs) right now? So I appreciate having somebody to really nerd out with. It's it's so much fun.
0: I'm with you on that one. Any excuse. All right, Amanda. Well, cheers. Until next time.
1: Thanks for having me. Take care.
0: Bye. Bye. Okay. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of VinePair's Cocktail College is also published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. Also, if you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe, and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits cocktail college is recorded and produced in new york city by myself and keith beavers vine pairs tastings director and all-round podcast guru of course i want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the vine pair team too many awesome people to mention they know who they are but i want to give some credit here to Danielle grinberg art director at vine pair for designing the awesome show logo and listen to that music that's a darby seaside original